you have your Bibles, let me invite you now to open them to the book of 1 Samuel. And today I wanted to look in chapter 2. If you want to hear the sermon that is outlined in the bulletin, come next week. <laughs> That's not the one I'm going to preach today. And I wrestle with myself often in starting a new series as to how much overview and background material I need to present to help you understand the passages better in their context. On the one hand, you don't want to overdo that because it can be boring as watching paint dry. I mean, it's boring sometimes. But on the other hand, I am really excited about preaching on the life of David. More scripture is devoted to him in First and Second Samuel and First Kings and any other character in the Bible outside of Jesus. So he is a preeminent, prominent figure in the Old Testament. And we will get to him in a couple of Sundays. But today you need to see, along with me, a little bit of the flow of the book of Judges. And the, reading, the reason I'm reading Hannah's prayer is literarily, in the book of 1 Samuel, Han Hannah's prayer is pretty much a summary of the book. These guys who wrote these uh, books of the Bible were not, you know, writing a paperback novel for uh, the next in a series of 50. Uh, they, uh, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, put together rather remarkable, uh, amazing books that uh, the Holy Spirit penned as well. So, Hear now the word of the Lord as we read together Hannah's prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has bone, seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked ones shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. This is God's word. Let us pray. 
Our Father and our God, we pray that as we take this time to look over this amazing book, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so we do pray that the Holy Spirit would empower both the one who preaches and those who hear so that the results will redound to the glory of our triune God. And we pray this prayer in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So it's important as we get into the book of 1 Samuel, next week we'll be starting the series in chapter 8, to remember that we live in an age when personal freedom is perhaps our culture's highest value. You hear it from the mouths of babes. You're not the boss of me. Don't impose your views or your worldview on me. Who and what gives you the right to tell me what to do? Or to put it another way, when the history of our age is written, it could be summed up as a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes which is actually the concluding book of Judges, which in sequence comes right before 1 Samuel. Ruth should be, is, is usually regarded as part of the writings. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the Hebrew Bible, unlike our English Bibles, the order of books means that Samuel follows Judges. And so it's important to remember that we have continuity going on with God's Word as He reveals Himself. And in many ways, the story told in First and Second Samuel is the solution to the problem, the problem of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. The book of First and Second Samuel were originally just one book, just one book. And so the, it was called the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel starts with no king and ends with a king. The days when Israel had no king were days of moral anarchy. The final chapters of the book of Judges pretty much have X-rated to R-rated material. Uh, some of you will go home and read it immediately since I said that. This is stuff they skipped in Sunday school because they didn't want you see, to see bodies of concubines being cut up and sent to various places. But the book of Judges ends in very, very ugly and brutal living. And this is what life is like when there is no king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Moral anarchy. But the situation is more ambiguous. It's true that Israel had no king, but fundamentally that was because they refused to acknowledge God as their king. The real problem was not the lack of a king, but the lack of obedience to God as their king. And the ambiguity continues to weave its way through uh, the book of Samuel. We will see Israel asking king, for a king. We will see God regarding the rejection of his rule. We will see the rule of the first king, Saul, and wonder whether having a king is much of an improvement as to having no king at all and living under the judges. And so all of that will be met with mixed blessings. But as we think about the narrative of the book of Samuel, first and second, 
uh, it's important for us to understand that the unity of the story is apparent when we look at the beginning of 1 Samuel and at the end of 2 Samuel. There is an inclusio or there is a mirror effect of those two things. The book of 1 Samuel begins with the world falling apart. It is utter chaos. We got a guy who's a high priest named Eli who has no discipline over his own sons who are abusing their positions in the worship of, uh, of Yahweh. By the way, I'm going to be using the name Yahweh a good bit. And Yahweh in the Old Testament is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton. It has four letters, Y-H-Vav-H or Y-H-W-H. And at times, older scholars uh, translated that with vowel pointings because there are no vowels in the Hebrew Old Testament. You have to add them to make words. And scholars have done that over the centuries. But for a long time, they called his name Jehovah. But later scholars uncovered it and realized that probably the more appropriate translation is Yahweh. And so Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, is in the process of bringing this incohate nation. Uh, and so the, the, the story begins with the world falling apart. The lamp was still burning, but only dimly with a flicker. And the woman was barren, that is Hannah. That starts the book up. Early in 1 Samuel, the Philistines, the seafaring people, captured the ark out of the tabernacle and took it to Philistia. So, bad stuff is happening. It begins again with the world falling apart. At the same time, Eli and his sons had died, and the Mosaic tabernacle at Shiloh was utterly destroyed. So there was no place for sacrifices. There was no place for the presence of God to dwell. And so Ichabod, that is the glory, kabod, of God had departed, had left the people, the covenant people of God, as the ark was carried off to the Philistines who worshiped the god Dagon, who is the big fish god. And so they were celebrating that Dagon had defeated Yahweh. More to that story later. But that's what's going on. To be the sure, the ark was ultimately returned to Israel, and David later set it in Jerusalem. But throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the worship system described in Exodus and Leviticus was simply not operating. The early chapters of 1 and 2 Samuel report the death of the Mosaic order. Meanwhile, with the dark age descending, Yahweh intervened to open the womb of Hannah, to trim the wick, and to create, as he always does, a new future. And he does that in this book. The first major character, Samuel, was called as a prophet to speak the word of God to the people of God. And he would initiate the construction of the new Israel. Samuel guided Israel through a period of liturgical and political chaos. And in the process laid a solid foundation for a new order. Second Samuel ends with David's census. You remember that which led to a plague that devastated Israel. To stop 
this plague, David purchased the threshing floor of Araunna and offered a sacrifice on it. At first glance, this seems an odd place to end the story of David, but it provides a fitting climax because it brings the story of the house of God to a conclusion, at least a penultimate conclusion. The threshing floor of Aranah became the location for the temple in Second Chronicles 6, or 3, verse 1. And so the story that begins with the desolation of the Mosaic tabernacle and tent ends with David purchasing a place for Solomon's house, or the Solomonic house. The big story in the book of Samuel is the transition from tabernacle to temple. That is, God has a passionate desire, as it were, to dwell with his people, to know them and be known by them, to dwell with them and to be worshipped by them and to be glorified by them, God in their midst. It started, the first temple was in the Garden of Eden, the sanctuary of God. And the Garden of Eden was a place in which there was no literal building temple, but the whole garden itself was a temple. And so creation is God's sanctuary. God dwells with his people, walked, as it were, in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. But sin occurred, and, the, and they were banned from the presence of God. They were driven east of Eden. And so the next major location of God's presence among his people was in the tabernacle. And the glory there was uh, seen by the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the Holy of Holies in that ragged, rugged-looking tent. But as we know, in the book of Samuel, Ichabod happens, the glory departs, leaves the tabernacle, the tabernacle is no more, and ultimately was pointing toward Solomon's temple. Davidic kingship, the concept of Zion, God dwelling with his people, the ultimate glory of God. Of course, we know after the exile, or before the exile, the temple was destroyed, and the second temple was built, and prophecy at best only partly and imperfectly filled. The new temple would be regeneration, the new heavens and earth, uh, salvation complete, nations come to Israel as a light, God dwells with his people, the glory of God, the suffering servant. And the new temple is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the new temple full of glory, resurrection, ascension, the temple in heaven. God dwells with his people, which points to us in the present tense. We are now the people of God, the temple of his body. We have come to Zion in Christ. Christ dwells with us by his spirit. We behold his glory and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. But ultimately there will be no temple. Revelation 21 tells us that God will dwell with his people. We start with Christ who gives us um, this entire theme and unfolds it as it is fulfilled. God himself will dwell. And there will be no structures. The whole of the new heavens and new earth will be his dwelling place. And so, that's what we get in Samuel. We begin uh, with the transition from tabernacle to temple. And David will have a huge role to play in that. Political transitions also accompanied this change in worship. 
First, there was a shift from rule by Gentiles to rule by Israelites. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Philistines were dominating Israel, and by the end of 2 Samuel, David himself had eliminated the Philistine threat and established a settled dynasty that would endure for several centuries. Second, uh, first and Second Samuel records a movement from the rule by judges in the book of Judges to the rule by kings. Eli was a judge, and Sam, Samuel was the last of that particular breed. Though anointed king, Saul was something of a transitional figure who remained at home plowing when he wasn't fighting the Ammonites. With David, however, Israel came fully into what is called the monarchical period. And within these larger transitions, the main story has to do with the crossing fates of both Saul and David. Saul's rise and fall is like an expanded retelling of the story of Adam. And if Saul was like that, the first Adam, David was a type of the last Adam, called to replace the fallen king as head of God's people, persecuted without cause by his rivals, waiting patiently until the Lord gave him the kingdom. This is not to say, as you will soon see, that David is perfect by any means. David is a man after the Lord's own heart and foreshadows the work of his greater son, Jesus. And we're going to see how he does that. This is how the Bible is tied together. I remember when I went to seminary, I had already been fairly well educated in the New Testament. You know, I studied the New Testament because it's new. The Old Testament is old. Who wants to study what is old? But the scales from my eyes fell in seminary when I began to study the Old Testament, and I said to myself, I have been missing two-thirds of the Bible. What a remarkable thing these books are and how they uh, find their fulfillment in an ultimate sense in the person and work of Jesus Christ both in his first coming and in his second coming and they add depth and appreciation for everything we see in the life of Christ. If you took out all of the Old Testament which Martian tried to do, uh, he was, it was a false prophet he tried to excise from the new testament all the old testament quotations you end up with a very thin new testament very thin very very thin and so we have a wonderful book here uh, that refers to us viewing the book of samuel from the perspective that i'm giving you today helps us understand its particular relevance for our times uh, it's important to remember as we think about First and Second Samuel that it provides amazing guidance and insight for the church in the 21st century. Since it tells a story in which one world gives birth to another world, a new beginning, a fresh start. It offers wisdom for Christians as we grope our way through our present church's crisis toward the light instead of the darkness. It points to the one thing we must do if we want to see the lamp burning again and if we hope to see the barren ever give birth. Perhaps most importantly, what First and Second Samuel highlight uh, 
is the decisive importance of leadership. And I'm so happy to make that emphatic. This church will rise no higher than its leadership. And if its leadership is bad, the church will sink like a big rock in water. Leadership is everything, and we're going to see that specifically. Leadership over generations. Americans like to pretend that the world works democratically, that reformation comes from the masses. And, uh, and uh, surely there's a symbiotic relationship, of course, between leaders and the led. A leader who has nobody following him is no leader. That's what my dad said one time when I asked him, Dad, do you think I'm a leader? And he said, well, turn around. And I said, why? He said, if ain't nobody following, you ain't no leader. <laughs> now, that was a very common sense approach. And I respect his wisdom, but he was right about that. By the way, everybody in the Bible is flawed, deeply flawed. Even Joseph, it might be hard to find it, but I think Joseph rubbed his brother's faces in it with that coat of many colors. That's my opinion. But I know everybody's a sinner. Everybody's deeply flawed. Saul is a bigger failure than David is, though David did some pretty serious sinning himself. But all of that to say this, I know something bad about everybody I know. I do. Without even asking, I already know. We all got stuff. But what these characters point to in the narrative is one greater than them. We need somebody greater than Saul. We need somebody greater than David. And we have somebody greater than David. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As Oliver Donovan, who is a brilliant political theology writer has pointed out the modern obsession with the social sciences has obscured the fact that societies we ha inhabit are politically formed. That is, they depend upon the art of government. Political and cultural leadership, or a lack of it, determines the health of a civilization and likewise the health of the church. That's why you need to pray so frequently for your leaders here. It is not simply that good leaders do things that restore health to civilizations. The mere fact of righteous and godly sh uh, leadership marks a rebirth. Now, at the on outset of 1 Samuel, Israel was sick because she was ruled by the Philistines. And worse, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Nobody names their kids Hophni or Phinehas. Why? Because these guys are the biggest losers in the Bible. They're huge losers. At the birth of Samuel, Hannah celebrated because she discerned that Yahweh had started the revolution of the elites, casting down the oppressive Philistines and wicked priests and raising up new nobles and ultimately a king. And Hannah's hope was vindicated over the subsequent decades. Yahweh eliminated Eli and his sons and be began to raise up faithful priests. And through the efforts of Samuel, Saul, David, the Philistines were driven from the land. Second Samuel ends with an Israelite king sitting on the throne receiving tribute from the nations that had once oppressed the people of God when the queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon in all of his glory the high point the apex of Israel 
Second uh, Samuel, of course, is by no means ideal, and much of the wisdom that that book offers is given through negative examples. Saul turned from the Lord early in his reign and threw the nation into utter confusion by his obsession with David. David, too, falls into sin with Bathsheba and never recovered really his earlier vigor. David's weakness opened the door for opportunists and rebels such as Joab's and Absalom's. Yet Israel's condition at the end of David's reign was undeniably a vast improvement. First and second Samuel pay particular attention to the failure of Israel's leaders to raise up leaders from a new generation. What does that say to us? That says to us that one of the priorities and responsibilities of elders in this church is to raise up and train and develop and encourage leadership. We should be about that, or we are about the wrong stuff. Preaching to myself as well as the others. Eli apparently was a pretty well-meaning priest who had no clue how to control his sons. He set the pattern at the outset, was followed by Samuel, and to a large extent, David. Surprisingly, the only leader to produce utterly faithful sons was Saul. His son, Jonathan, was an amazing human being. We will see that. So First and Second Samuel, the pattern of uh, faithless sons replaced by a faithful adopted son is typological, but this pattern also highlights a key failure of Israel's leading during the early monarchy. The promise of faithful leadership that Hannah looked to was finally fulfilled in Jesus. He is the true king who rises like the sun and causes the vegetation of the land to flourish. Yet Jesus does not govern alone throughout the prophetic books we see over and over the promise of a new covenant included the promise that Israel's corrupt and ungodly leaders would be replaced with true shepherds found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel a promise fulfilled when Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts to men Ephesians 4 8 to 13 Jesus's gathering of the apostles was not just a pragmatic necessity a way of ensuring that his movement was part of the uh, good news for which Israel had been waiting, part of the gospel. But his installation, let me say, of new shepherds over Israel was part of the good news which Israel had been waiting for, part of the good news of the gospel. And it is the gospel that we crave to see fulfilled in our own times. How do we get from where we are to where we hope to be is one of the main practical messages in First and Second Samuel. We know the reformation of the new Israel has occurred and is occurring when David replaces the Elis and the Philistines that rule the church today. The church will simply not be revived until that is fulfilled which was spoken by the psalmist. His office let another man take. Now, to sort of show you how 
The book of Samuel uses typology or uses events of its time to point to its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to think with me for a moment about the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. The story of the Ark is like the story of Exodus, the Exodus, in a number of ways, but there are also important differences. In the Exodus, Israel was in captivity in Egypt. Moses warns Israel that they will be driven from the land they, uh, of if they do not obey the Lord. For a couple of centuries, Israel had been worshiping idols, and Eli's sons are guilty of very great sins. Yet Israel is not being driven from the land. Instead, and listen carefully, the ark, the symbol of the Lord's presence in Israel, leaves. The Lord himself takes on the curses of the covenant. He goes into exile in the place of his sinful people, and while he is in exile, he defeats Israel's enemies. This is a picture of the gospel. As Jesus defeated Satan and sin by his humiliation, so Yahweh defeats Dagon and Philistia by suffering defeat in exile, but Yahweh proves that the defeat of God is always greater than the victory of any man. That's what we see buried in books like first and second Samuel. I have to admit that when I was a young preacher I, I preached out of the Old Testament and generally what I would do was I would point out the things the guys did that were right and that's why we ought to do them and I would point out the things the guys did that were wrong. We need to be like Abraham. When? When he offered Isaac or when he lied about his wife Sarah? You know the deadly bees. Be like Daniel. Be a Daniel. Be like this. There's maybe a little value in some of that. But that's not what this book is about. That's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is always, remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel, walking with two uh, forlorn, discouraged, depressed disciples. And he begins to take the Bible and show them in the, let me throw a little Hebrew at you, the Ketavim, which is the writings, the Torah, which is the law, and the, um, what's the other one? Tanakh. Ketavim, Torah, in. I should have written it down. Oh, Nabaim. You say, what's that? Prophets. He showed them how he himself, Christ, fulfilled all of that, all of the law and the prophets and the writings and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Christ. We do not truly understand the Bible until we understand the Old Testament. And we do not truly understand the Old Testament until we understand that what God is doing is establishing a kingdom by way of covenant. That's what he's doing. Establishing a kingdom by way of covenant. All of this Old Testament material is wrapped in God's passionate desire to be a God to his people and for us to be the people of God. And to live with him in the deepest fellowship possible. 
And so before I jumped off to Israel's first king, I thought it might be helpful for you to sort of give you an overview of the entire book to see where it goes, what it's about, and how the parts fit together to make a coherent whole. But ultimately, they find the fullness of their meaning in Jesus. It will give you, you know, a lot of people don't have much confidence in the Bible. Because the Bible's an authoritative book. It makes statements that if you don't believe it are annoying. Or maybe even uh, provoking. Or maybe even hostility arises. Because the Bible says some pretty strong stuff. But once you begin to study the Bible and see it's, it's, it's obvious that men were part of the writing of it, but it's obvious also that the Holy Spirit breathed it out, expired it, or yeah, exhaled it. The writers inhaled it and wrote it. But the Bible holds together remarkably. The central message is there. And so in these historical books, any section of the Bible, you will see over and over certain stories repeated that have sort of the same plot, that have sort of the same characters, and the same kind of stuff uh, happen. How often do we see the concept of barrenness in the Bible? Barrenness always means a lack of fruitfulness. It's all over the place. Why? Because the Bible is about Jesus. He is the sum and substance of it, who he is, what he did, what he's doing now, and what he will do when he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to our time in First and Second Samuel. We pray that you would give us a heart to want to know it and ears to hear what you're saying to us from it. We know that this is far more than history the book of Samuel. It is history, but it's far more than that. It's preached history. It's theological history. It is gospel history. And we pray that we would all be so excited to sit at your feet and have us, you, show us how glorious the fulfillment of Jesus is. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who are amazed by grace, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.